Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Nancy Stagliano. She's the CEO of South San Francisco-based Neuron23. The company is privately held and was started in late 2018. Like we've seen over the past 30 years in oncology, the hope at Neuron23 is to translate a greater understanding of how genetics contribute to disease pathology into targeted therapies for molecularly defined subgroups of patients with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and other common neurodegenerative diseases. At its best, a precision neuroscience approach ought to pave the way for smaller, faster, less expensive clinical trials with a higher probability of success. That hasn't happened yet, but there's been a surge of scientific interest. At least 20 genes are associated with Parkinson's disease that runs in families, and these genes and their mutations are being studied intensely to see how they contribute to disease symptoms that show up in patients in myriad ways. Nancy is a neuroscientist by training who got her PhD at the University of Miami before continuing with a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School. She made the move to industry at the peak of the genomics boom, going to work at one of the early movers, Millennium Pharmaceuticals. She later became an entrepreneur and CEO at Cytomics Therapeutics, which is now publicly traded, before she left to run two other startups, Iperion and True North Therapeutics, that were later successfully acquired by large pharma companies. The lead program at Neuron23 is a small molecule drug candidate aimed at the LARC2 protein that's associated with Parkinson's disease. The company conducted its first trial in healthy volunteers in 2023 and has selected a lead candidate for further study in Parkinson's patients. Neuron23 is advancing that drug with a blood-based companion diagnostic developed in partnership with Kyogen in hopes of selecting the patients most likely to benefit from the drug. Now, the LARC2 gene was first discovered in 2004, and there are still no targeted therapies for Parkinson's based on this finding. There are many reasons for that, and I'm including a recent review article from NPJ Parkinson's Disease in the show notes for background. Precision neuroscience will require a fundamental redefining of disease based on molecular characteristics, much like we've seen happen in recent years with cancer. Nancy sees brain science as the final frontier of biomedicine. The long-term vision is to get the right drug to the right patient at the right time, like scientists have been talking about in cancer for 30 years. It's a challenging time, but an exciting time in neuroscience. Now, please join me and Nancy Stagliano on The Long Run. Nancy Stagliano, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nancy, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I saw on your company website that you refer to uh, neurodegeneration or brain diseases as the final frontier of biomedicine. Uh, they're so complex and and interesting, and the needs are so prevalent and, and enormous. Um, so it's just um, a real pleasure to hear you uh, talk about the the problem that you see and how you're going to go about um, approaching it. It's going to be fun. There's so much to talk about in that space, and uh, I'm not even sure where to begin, but 
I do think about the brain as as the final frontier because you know it's it's the most complex organism. It holds our mind, our soul, our ability to function, breathe, move, and think. And we know still so little about it. And and so I started my career as an electrical engineer in college. And well, let's let let's just back up a little bit here, Nancy. I want to come to all of this later. Okay. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Where uh, did you grow up? I grew up in a small town outside of Philadelphia called Conshohocken, northwest of Philadelphia, and uh, Italian Catholic family, small little neighborhood, and uh, stayed there for uh, for most of my early years until uh, until I moved away for graduate school. So I've uh, spent a good portion of my life outside of Philadelphia. What did your parents do for a living? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and um, my dad worked in a variety of jobs. So both of them high school educated, no graduate degrees. I had no, uh, you know, exposure to to sort of uh, the type of work I'm doing now and and the field that I ended up becoming very passionate about. But my dad was in sales and and various aspects of of business, and so he worked in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Okay, but the greater Philadelphia area, there there is a pharmaceutical industry there. Uh, were you did you have some exposure to that, like classmates, or were you aware of it around you? I certainly was aware of it. You know, what was interesting was uh, I have I've always worked, Luke. So since I was eleven, I started babysitting, and um, <laughs> any chance to, uh, to to do something different and and, and make a little money, and uh, and I started babysitting for a doctor who exposed me a little bit to the practice of medicine and to research. And so I would listen to him talk about his work. And he was a physiatrist who did a lot of work on uh, movement disorders. And so I would just listen to him as as we chatted on rides home from from the job or um, then I'm spending time with his family and kids. And and it piqued my interest, you know, and it, it gave me the sort of the spark that made me think about, did I want to go into medicine? Did I want to to study something like that. And so the the farm industry around me uh, was really background until later, until I then ended up, you know, going to college and getting more exposed to it. If you started babysitting at 11, you must have been the responsible one. <laughs> I've been accused of that <laughs> for my whole life, I think. But uh, every once in a while, I, I fall short. But yes, yes. And the, the responsible one and the one who, you know, was clearly uh, motivated. So you, you picked up some interest in medical science from um, the, this uh, physician. Did something happen in school, like in middle school, high school, that kind of sparked your interest in in biotech and biomedicine? Yeah, I'll never forget my freshman physical science teacher, John Briner, at Archbishop Kennedy High School, uh, a little, uh, little Catholic high school in, in uh, Conshohocken. And I just got very excited about about science. And we did these these simple, silly experiments with test tubes, and you know, making things smoke or blow up or change color. And uh, and it, it really piqued my curiosity. And then it it just got me thinking more about um, and observing the world around me. You know, I've always been a big big animal lover, and so. You know, I started to look at uh, at my dog differently. I started to look at the way behavior works differently. I'll never forget those those sort of early days when a science teacher can influence how you think. And when you start to ask questions of the world around you, right, whether it's in a, a very simple 
ninth grade class or, or or as you're just observing life, you you start to think of of all the all the things you might continue to ask and all the unanswered questions. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to learn once you start digging in. Um, and you realize, like, if you're lucky early on, how little we know. Absolutely. Uh, but, okay, so how did you um, settle on, like, go off to college and decide on neuroscience as uh, as a major? Yeah, so I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to study, but I knew I liked science and math, and I decided to go the engineering route. So I majored in electrical engineering at Drexel University for my undergrad and started to get more exposed then to to some of the medical applications of engineering and focused on more biomedical applications of electrical engineering. But the whole time I continued to to work and ended up working for that, that position that I babysat for earlier and started to do a research project around patients who had movement disorders. So we worked on waveforms from the brain, evoked potentials, and I would actually do the coding, the programming for the analysis of those waveforms. So in doing that, I became really fascinated again by the generator of those waveforms, not so much the Fourier transforms that I was programming, but but what was making them and why was it different from one patient to another, from one disease to another? What was going on inside that in those heads, right? And so it caused me to shift from basic engineering to neuroscience. And so I ended up focusing then my PhD in neuroscience at the University of Miami. And the first sort of obvious direction for me, because I've always been interested in in systems biology and translational applications of science, was to, to think about studying brain injury. So my PhD work was in stroke, cerebral ischemia, mechanisms of injury in the brain. But it always kind of leaned toward that systems approach. It was never a reductionist type of set of experiments that that I led. I was very interested in, again, behavior and how disorders, how dysfunction manifests. And so now, that was the focus. Now, what years, what time frame are we talking about here when you're in graduate school at Miami? I was in graduate school from 92 to 96. So relatively okay, so PhD. <laughs> I think this was the the so-called decade of the brain. Um, yes. NIH was making its big investments and uh, you know, so much to learn, <laughs> to, to bring up a point we, we mentioned earlier. I mean, how did you know where to start <laughs> uh, to, to figure out like what, what causes it, movement disorders or um, some of these chronic neurodegenerative diseases? There's a theme here, Luke. I think that's going to going to permeate our conversation, and it's uh, it's genetics. And so, at the time that I was studying stroke and cerebral ischemia, some landmark papers came out by uh, Paul Wong at, at Mass General on the role of nitric oxide nitric oxide synthase in cerebral ischemia. Neuronal nitric oxide synthase being deleterious, and endothelial nitric oxide synthase potentially beneficial after stroke. And so that was an area that that interested me. And so in in the early part of my graduate work, I just started to work on models, stroke models that that had components of of uh, vascular disruption, direct vascular injury that were studied and and able to be 
are categorized by the, the expression in particular of nitric oxide and, and its byproducts. Are then, these animal models? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Animal models. And yes, mm -hmm. mouse models of middle cerebral artery occlusion, mouse, mouse models of thromboembolic stroke. And, and it was a really exciting time in the field because these, these two genetic observations based on knockout animals and their response to stroke and stroke models really changed the way we thought about targeting in that disease and in that injury, right? So how so could you- So you could look at things like cause and effect. <laughs> exactly, exactly, which in that field to, to this day is still something very challenging, right? It, it's, it's such an acute, rapid, destructive insult that it's very difficult to understand the progression of of the damage, but but we did learn a lot from these animal models, and so for me it was it was the beginning of a, a several years of work in this space because once I got my PhD at the University of Miami, I moved to Mass General, worked in that lab where where they had discovered the role of NNOS and ENOS, and and then got to continue that work with with a different kind of lens, but. What was interesting as I was doing it was I was considering, you know, how do you, how can you intervene here? And is this, is this something that is interesting or is it really translatable, right? And there's a big difference sometimes in, in what we do, right? And for so me, the interest was always that translation. Okay. So there's, there's the basic curiosity of science, which, you know, I hear coming through as well, but there's also that, that, longer term desire to, okay, how do we actually do something that's going to modulate the disease uh, or, or or translate this into benefit for the, the ultimate patients? Exactly. For me, that was always the the heart of the question, the heart of the research. And and I think that we has as scientists come variety of flavors, right? And so some of us are very, very interested in focusing on one question and, and curiosity for curiosity's sake. And, and a lot of those discoveries eventually lead to translatable findings. But, but for me, it was always about relating what I was doing to the human condition. So you went to Harvard Medical School. You did a postdoc continuing on in the, the nitric oxide related work that you had begun um, as a grad student. Um, now, how did that wrap up or conclude for you? Well, what it taught me were a number of things. One was that I wasn't going to be an academic scientist forever. And and I knew I, I, I had always wanted to work in a bigger organization. So that gets back to your earlier question about being surrounded by pharma growing up. One of my postdocs when I was at Drexel in electrical engineering was at McNeil Labs, right? Makers of Tylenol, division of J&J. &J. And it really taught me about the culture of some of those companies and the culture of that company in particular, the collaborative spirit, the shared mission, which is sometimes absent in academia. Sometimes it's very, very opposite that, right? And so I knew from that point, even in college, that I wanted to, to work at a company. So finishing up my fellowship and postdoc at, at Mass General was really a means to an end. It it taught me a lot about independent research, taught me a lot about a competitive environment, taught me a lot about a fast-paced body of work because the field was really exploding when when these two 
that findings were dis- described and what these two knockout animals were were available to the world, it was uh, it was a, a really intense time in that particular biology. And so I learned all about that, and I learned that I could succeed there, but that I wanted to more to apply my experience and energies towards a more group effort, if you will. And did you so, go from there to Millennium? Correct. Yeah, and. And that was an interesting transition because I had been given uh, an offer by Eli Lilly to go work in stroke, continue exactly what I was doing, which I had been doing for seven years, and and still get that corporate experience. And then I had this moment where I thought, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should do something very, very different. And again, that's not typical for a lot of scientists who who really value and understandably so depth in in a particular biology or or you know area but for me it was it was always about learning something different and getting a different experience and millennium at that time was in 1999 was just on this crazy upswing right growth go go genomics boom exactly done the over the top deals the the deal with bear at that time to discover 400 plus genomics targets linked to disease they were on a on a hiring spree, you know, ra- raising a lot of capital, and and it just it, it was it was just a contagious kind of um, excitement around that that opportunity. So I did take a job there. Did you have colleagues, or how, how did that actually happen? The old fashioned way. I lined up for an interview. They had a job fair, and I'll never forget. <laughs> Put my resume in, and didn't know anybody there, and uh, and it was really interesting because. They weren't doing any very much. I shouldn't say anything, but at the time, they weren't doing very much in CNS diseases. So I was really a fish out of water. I described earlier, I'm a systems biology type person, and it was all about genomics. I hadn't touched a nucleic acid in my career prior to that. So it was a real departure for me, but uh, but a very good decision in retrospect. So you, you took a risk. Um, Big risk. It, you, you thought um, there's just a lot of smart people working hard and with enthusiasm. There was a certain je ne sais quoi of that place. Um, and and you were there for something like eight years. Is that right? Yeah, a little over seven. A little over seven, yeah. And um, I mean, what was the, the main thing that you learned about yourself and your career in that, that kind of initial formative stage? There are so many lessons that I learned from my time at Millennium. I mean, what an incredible place to train. What an incredible, incredible group of people to work with, right? The, the leadership. I remember going to the very first company meeting after I joined, and it was shortly after I joined, probably the first or second week. And Mark Levin was talking about the mission and the nothing is impossible psyche that was that was pervasive there. And I remember going into the meeting sort of skeptical thinking am i gonna am i gonna buy into this corporate culture thing and and then walking out wishing i had pom-poms and i wished i could have been a cheerleader right for for that that whole concept and so from the very beginning i was bought into this this notion that they were trying to do we were trying to do something very revolutionary and very different and and so for me it taught me so many things it taught me yes that i could take risks and and then I could I could do okay and having done that. But also that that there were there were places where you could you could grow in ways that you never expected. And so I didn't I didn't plan, quite frankly, a lot of what I ended up doing 
at Millennium. And no, that's, you a, did, that's a refreshing thing. Well, it, you're at this fast growth company. So like lots of things needed to be done. And I suppose like, you know, a, a person who's willing to raise her hand um, could probably, yeah. you know, get exposed to a lot of different uh, aspects of the business and, and keep learning. And this is also, you were there during both the Mark Levin era and then Deb Dunsire. Is that right? Um, so, like, and that's when it was you know, uh, maturing into a more commercial enterprise. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it was such an interesting arc to have been able to be a part of that. In terms of how the company started, again, big deals with pharma companies trying to identify linkages between newly described genomics targets and and disease across a huge range of diseases, right? Which made it exciting. First, I started to work in osteoporosis and oncology. And then then we acquired core therapeutics and we all of a sudden had a cardiovascular franchise. And and then I became involved in cardiovascular genomics target ID. And and then we acquired leukocyte and we had a we had a drug, right? We had Belcade that eventually became a drug, right? And and then I became involved in medical affairs and and education around the mechanism of action of Belcade and proteasome inhibition in multiple myeloma. And so it gave me a number of opportunities that, again, I couldn't have imagined as a young scientist coming out of a postdoc. And I, and I don't think m- many companies do that, right? And so you're absolutely right. I did raise my hand. I did show myself to be someone who is willing to, to kind of reinvent on a regular basis and also someone who, who believed that there was opportunity, right, across the organization. And they facilitated that. And, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you went from being, you know, a thousand miles deep on neuroscience <laughs> to, you know, wading into these other waters over there, like cardiovascular disease, oncology, and then just putting on the, the learning hat. <laughs> uh, yep, it's a good way to put it, you know, and I think that's, that's great training in general for scientists. We, we can forget that a lot of what we do, whether it's basic science, drug discovery, is pattern recognition. We, you ask questions, we identify problems, we apply templates and algorithms and past experience, and and you should be able to to make some progress, right? You should be able to use use the tools around you, use people around you, and and make advances. And so, studying a new field like atherosclerosis for me was was about applying the same rules and first principles that. I did when I was studying stroke. The difference, of course, in industry is that you have a different goal, you have a different timeline, right? You don't have seven years necessarily to dig in and ask one question. And so you have to you have to think about that set of experiments and questions and problems differently. But it was great training ground as well to inform my thinking about what I wanted to do next, because it did allow me to wear a number of different hats. And, and go broad, deep, and talk to a number of different audiences, and you know, I'd be touched by a different group. I wanted to ask you about that communications part because I think that was part of your remit for a while, anyway. And uh, you know, this is something that I think I noticed early on in my interviews with you is that you were the kind of person who um, could go really deep on an area like neuroscience, but then explain it to a cancer researcher. <laughs> There's a there, there's an art to that, uh, to to being 
multilingual, so to speak, <laughs> not so, so narrow and so uh, immersed in the jargon that you struggle to communicate to your colleagues or to investors or to partners or to anybody who you know you want to work with. Well, thank you, Luke. That's very nice of you to say. It was a great experience for me to try to hone that skill in that communications role. I was very privileged to to work with with the PR group and the IR group, and as a as a hardcore scientist, right, trained with no no specific business background. I considered myself a fish out of water, but but it as I began to realize what what needed to be done in different settings, you know, you can dial that depth and that's that specificity and that detail up and down, right? But but at the end of the day, you know, you have to you have to know your audience. You have to recognize that whether you're talking to a Nobel laureate about a very specific area of research or whether you're talking to to Wall Street to to more broadly describe what your program or drug does, there's a so what to everything that you say, right? There has to be. And and I think that that's an important an important lesson for for scientists and business people, no matter what they're working on. So you you're getting. I mean, you you were grounded in like hardcore science. You're you're expanding your horizons now. Your knowledge of the business and and it's all it's different manifestations. You're you're gaining communication skills. <laughs> I mean, you could kind of I can kind of see where this is going. Like maybe you could become an executive. <laughs> when did that thought enter your head, or how, how did that come to be? Yeah, it sort of looks good in the retrospectoscope, right? Uh, but at this point, I I still always call myself an accidental entrepreneur, and and so I I moved to California, uh, Santa Barbara specifically, in uh, 2010, and I was at Millennium in Medical Affairs. And wait, wait a second. Why, why, why did you move to the West Coast? For personal reasons, my my ex husband actually um, wanted to work there, and so and I've always loved California. So I always thought this is great. I'll take this. I'll take this opportunity. I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I would do, but at the time, I was working in medical affairs, learning a lot, understanding that aspect of the business, which was really important. Right? How do clinicians and how do patients view what we do every day? Right. And and so that I think I think is a very, very, very important aspect and and somewhat underserved when we when scientists think about a question that's applied to to a patient population. They forget about the challenges in the field using a drug, the way physicians have to to interact with patients, what they can promise, what they can't. And so it was a great experience for me. And Millennium allowed me that opportunity while I moved to Santa Barbara. But I knew that I couldn't do that forever. And I knew that. I want it to to try something different. So the CEO title was not really on my radar, to be honest. It was more about wearing a bunch of different hats and and maybe getting involved in a small company. So I looked at companies like Amgen that were down the road. I thought about thought about the big companies and I said, no, I, I definitely want to to take a different risk here. So I ended up partnering with folks at UC Santa Barbara in the engineering department. And we founded Cytomics Therapeutics, which was essentially, you know, based on a couple of government grants and this concept of a, a protein engineering play, bacterial display to identify peptides, initially thinking about diagnostics for the application. But for me, it was, okay, small fish, I mean, big fish, small pond, right? 
And I had this chance to do something because there weren't a whole lot of people who had the experience I did in that community that were going to take a leap like this. That's taking a big risk. Uh, you know, uh, true entrepreneurship, like starting a company from scratch. Exactly. And, and really, again, having minimal experience with that, I touched a number of different important aspects of the role, as you alluded to in my millennium time, but it was not, it was not the same thing. I didn't, I didn't know what a cap table was. I didn't know what, uh, what it meant to approach investors. I didn't know how to sell a promise, right? Because again, as a hardcore scientist, you just, you deliver data, you describe data that exists, you just interpret that data and, and you go to the next question. And so in this case, it was, it was a steep climb, right? to to understand better uh, how to tell to tell those stories and what I could promise credibly. Did you have doubts? Were you were you afraid? Yes, of course, both of those things. I, I doubted that I could do it. And I remember talking to the founding investor, angel investor Fred Gluck, who's been a mentor to me for a long time since then. And you know, I said to him, I'm not sure that I know exactly what to do here, but I'll give it a shot, you know, and I'll always, I'll always ask questions. I'll always try to surround myself by people with people who who can answer those questions and who can steer me. But I know how to do how to run a research program. I know how to do that, and and I'm very careful and thoughtful about resourcing. I know how to do that, and I said, but I don't know how to raise money, and and so can you help me with that? And he said, well, look, it's just about you telling your story. And it's about you describing to people why you think what you're doing is important and valuable and how you would use their money. So I started with that very simple, very large oversimplification, but of an approach to to being an entrepreneur. And, and I think the leading part, the leading a team was something that I was comfortable with. But but the the running the business, thinking about a long term plan, thinking about supporting those folks, was was a different mindset. If you like listening to the long run, you'll love a subscription to Timberman Report. This is where you can read my in depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday front points column that covers the major issues and events of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And would your organization like to raise awareness of your work with a targeted audience of 10,000 biotech leaders? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. Contact my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes, at Stephanie at TimmermanReport.com. You get Cytomics up and going, um, ends up moving to the Bay Area. You move to the Bay Area, too. Um, and then you, your network starts to change. Like, you, you're calling on these investors. You're, you're getting in, in more of that Bay Area uh, milieu, uh, the biotech community. Cytomics, you, you were there for a few years. It's, it's still around. It's publicly traded. Um, Bispecifics and antibody drug conjugates. Um, you, um, I'm going to kind of fast forward through a couple of your stops. Like you went to Iperion. I remember talking with you about that. That company had needed like a reboot when, yeah. when you got there. Like how, how did, 
maybe was there an important takeaway from from that stop before you got to uh, True North? There was. Iperion was a company that was based on such an important and big idea, right? The discovery of, of a method to create human iPS cells, the Amanaka method, right? Which was the subject of a Nobel Prize after the company was formed. The merging of two big institutes, right? The Gladstone and Harvard Stem Cell Institute and the scientists behind that. So in a lot of ways, it was really a very, very unique and breakthrough type of approach to industrializing, if you will, drug discovery, right? That was the concept. And, and I think the lessons learned there were that, and especially today, now many years later, the power of, of iPS cells, the power of that type of tool, and in particular in neuroscience, where we don't have access to human samples as readily as we do in hematology or oncology or other diseases. And so the idea of creating models for brain disorders was was very smart, right? And it made perfect sense. The challenge, I think, at Iperion was that they had tried they tried to do that for a number of diseases with a technology that was really just in its nascent stages. Right? And so to scale as much as they did, to to go as broad as they did was a challenge. And so when I came into the company, there was this moment of really needing to take a hard look. What do we know about these different research programs? What do we know about these models? Which ones are the most robust? Which ones are yielding the most interesting findings? Which ones are tractable? Right? So I was very unpopular when, when I came into the company because I had to do a number of difficult things. Right? And, well, this was a hard time, too. This was, I think with Great Recession was on, and so money was just not growing on trees anymore, and you know it was starting to burn. You had to look at that and, okay, how long do we got here before we got to start showing results? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And can we can we do it based with the money that we have? To your point, it was a challenging time. This was pre the neuroscience renaissance, right? This was pre people believing that there was there was a lot you could do in neuro, and and so it was a it was a challenge. But for me, it just it reminded me of what I had always ascribed to, which is focus, and and just taking one step at a time, walking before you run in a company, and making sure that you have firm footing that that you're building on and. I, I applaud the idea of the founders of Iperion, and I certainly think that we've seen now in the last decade in particular some of the, the applications of iPS cells, but it was probably just a little early in the field to have gone in that big. Yeah. So you narrowed this down. I think you settled on a lead program, which is an antibody for tau for Correct. Alzheimer's, um, ended up selling the company to BMS uh, for um, a good amount, $175 million up front. Um, this, um, how did, did this change your, um, uh, profile as a CEO? Did the, did the, did the venture capitalists like applaud you and, and, uh, like the headhunters come to you and say, Hey, you know, um, we, you're validated now and come do this and come do that. It's a great, it's a great question because you know, that's, that's what happens in our field, right? Until you, until you have a win of some sort, you know, there's always this, there's this self-doubt as we talked about, there's this, this question about our, do you, do you have what it takes? The Iperion experience was, was interesting in the sense that we, we discovered the first extracellular tau antibody, right? Based on, on a model of human uh, IPS drive neurons and that was exciting, right? A, a first-in-class novel 
novel target and our novel therapeutic candidate. And we did sell it for a good amount, especially for a preclinical asset, right? And and it was um, it was a nice, really interesting and, and nice transaction to do. And the, the experience with BMS was extremely positive. Unfortunately, eventually they divested neuroscience, right? And and that molecule moved on. But at the same time that we discovered that molecule, we also were focused on complement. And based on observations we had seen in neuroinflammation models. But we decided to stay away from CNS disorders for that one based on the, the biology of, of classical complement. And so True, New True North was formed before we even sold Iperion. So despite the fact that there were headhunters calling, I already had another job. <laughs> and so I already had another company. But you're right, it does it does provide the validation that that helps you get funded and get additional support when you want to ask different questions. So what was it about the cold agglutinin disease um, therapeutic area or the classical complement pathway that made you want to stick to this, this program at True North? Once again, it was different. Different biology, different space, a rare disease, completely foreign ground for me. And the biology seemed so compelling, which in fact it is. And, and that's why it that drug is now approved and sold by Sanofi, Sutimlimab, and JMO. But at the time, it just it became such an interesting challenge and a unique learning opportunity for me to, to understand what rare disease drug development looked like, to, to work on a target that was so, quite frankly, readily accessible, the complete opposite of neurodegenerative diseases, right? <laughs> a blood-based target where you're measuring you know, hemoglobin levels. Boy, I, that was a dream when you think about the contrast to Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, right? <laughs> Within yeah, a yeah. very, very short period of time, you had an answer about whether the drug worked. You, you had make other an antibody, you, yeah, you, antibody. you hit the target, you can measure that, you can show like a connection downstream to the, the clinical outcome you want. Exactly. You've got it. And and so, boy, in retrospect, I uh, that was easy. But there are certainly other challenges. It was it was describing the natural history of the patients. It was just creating the market opportunity, right? The very first drug for this disease. So it, it, it was a very different aspect of drug development that I had never encountered before, but very exciting. And we sold that company to BioVeritive. BioVeritive, now part of Sanofi, and that's a product on the market, um, which um, not a lot of entrepreneurs get to say that they, they saw this thing from um, all the way through. Uh, or, or very close to it. By the time you're ready to, to hand the baby over to uh, a big company that's really good at commercializing new drugs. It was a privilege to be a part of that program. Okay, so that brings us to your current gig, Neuron23. Um, what um, drew you to this, this company and, and what's the big idea? I feel like Neuron23 is the intersection of many things I've been thinking about and working on and, and many of the companies we described. Neuron23 was founded in 2018 with the idea of bringing precision medicine to neurology. Where would be the first to do this? Since Herceptin was approved in 1998, 25 years ago, right, the first demonstration of a drug and a companion diagnostic, there's not a single neuro companion diagnostic. There's not a single neuro precision medicine approach. And I feel like that revolution that Genentech launched 
in 98 with her SEP test and her septin is something that neuroscience has been late to the party, but can take advantage of. And so I was thrilled with the concept that we would look at genetically defined targets in neuro and try to build on that and try to develop drugs as well as potentially companion diagnostics to stratify patient populations and have a higher chance of clinical success. The neurodegeneration field, as you know, has struggled tremendously. And I think in large part, that's due to the heterogeneity of the disease that's been poorly described because of the lack of samples, because of the lack of quality material and data, and and also because of the, the path that has not been mapped yet and paved yet. So I think Neuron23 has the chance to lead a sea change in this respect, and I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, there are so many contributing factors, genetics, environment, uh, um, and it's rarely ever just one gene that that's mutated. There's usually multiple things going on. So coming back to one of those earlier questions, where do you start? How do you intervene uh, with such a, a complex uh, heter- uh, disease environment in a single individual, much less whole populations? Correct, correct. Uh, to, for us to think that Parkinson's is driven by one pathway is really ludicrous, right? Look at which diseases can, how many diseases can you point to that generate and develop over decades look like that? And so the etiology of Parkinson's is going to allow us, as we understand it better, to subtype patients. And there will be different types of Parkinson's disease. And so when you think about how do you start, for me, it, it was logical to start with genetics, right? It was logical to look at what the human body taught us when something goes wrong and then you get a disease. Okay, I'm going to stand up and listen to that, right? And we all know that that increases your chance of success in drug development. But in general, you're, you're, you're being pointed towards something and, you know, how do you not look at it? But LARC2 was discovered in 2004, right? Yeah. And so it's a long time for for folks to finally start to get to ask the question about its role in Parkinson's. Well, okay. So to build on that analogy of you know what Genentech did there with her two positive breast cancer, I mean, we, it redefined the disease. You no longer just have some big amorphous thing called breast cancer. You have her two positive or her two negative or or a number of other um, mutations that are molecularly driving the disease. We know this, and we can intervene with them now with. Uh, Parkinson's, your target is LARC2. Can you describe like that gene and that protein and what we think it does? Yeah, you know, LARC2 is a kinase um, and it is thought to have a number of roles and a number of functions. I think the most important probably to Parkinson's are around lysosomal function and, and cellular trafficking. So what we what we do know about LARC2, thanks to familial studies, Parkinson's disease, large numbers of families that were sequenced in, in 2004 when the gene was cloned and, and shown to have a number of missense mutations in the gene, is that they have a higher risk of Parkinson's and autosomal dominant, late stage, late onset Parkinson's. It's thought to be due to hyperphosphorylation, hyperactivity of the kinase. 
And that hyperphosphorylation is, is linked in general to a number of uh, a number of things, and and a lot of diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, link to hyperactive kinases like and phosphorylation like tau, and and like synuclein and others. And so we do we do see a trend here and a pattern here in in brain disorders where uh, hyperactive kinases cause cause damage and destruction. And so what we've seen though is that the the function of NLARC2 mutation carriers um, is is actually a bit unclear. There are a number of different consequences in in these patients when you look at postmortem brains in terms of what a LARC2 mutation might cause. It might have uh, neurodegeneration in the substantia nigra. It might cause different um, circuits and synuclein deposits and in others. And so it's it's a complex system that we don't yet completely understand. And we haven't been able to benefit uh, by studying animal models, uh, things like that in, in this particular case. And so we have to rely a lot on on the human genetics to, to convince us that this is a target worth intervening against. How many people with Parkinson's have this mutation? It's estimated that about two to three percent carry one of the six or seven mutations in LARC2 that are the familial form of the disease. So it's a small percentage, but obviously a meaningful number of, of patients when you think about the fact that there are about 6 million patients uh, worldwide today that have Parkinson's. And it's it's passed along in families, but is it can it also be acquired? At this point, these these mutations are not, but, but what we have been studying at Neuron23 is really how to leverage what we know about the LARC2 mutations and their increased risk for Parkinson's. And what the field has suspected over the past probably two decades, that there are a subset of sporadic patients who don't have those mutations, those missense mutations, that have LARC2-driven disease, LARC2 hyperactivity. So we have been studying, and that's the basis of our companion diagnostic, we have been studying that population and using both publicly available data and private data sets that we've collected to build a machine learning model to help us identify those patients and identify features that unify those patients with those that carry the mutations in LARC2. So the exciting part about Neuron23 right now is that we have a companion diagnostic that is a genetic test looking for a group of SNPs outside of the LARC2 gene that suggest that that patient population has hyperactive LARC2 pathway. And that companion diagnostic is partnered with Kyogen, and we intend to develop it in lockstep with our clinical candidate so that we can be the first to bring that application to neuroscience, right? So, to so this sporadic office. This sporadic yeah. population who don't really have the familial inherited uh, LARC2 mutation. Is that a bigger group of patients potentially, or do we know how many are out there that fit this profile? Yeah, it's based on our calculation and our models, it's 30% of sporadic patients. So it's a large number, right? Of, of all Parkinson's. Of all Parkinson's. Correct. Okay. So um, so you're developing a, a drug that in theoretically could be used by maybe a third of all Parkinson's patients. That's you want to find it, them. 
That's that's correct. And we know exactly how to find them. Uh, and it's a, a SNP-based test, as I mentioned. So it's, it's robust. It's easy to do. You know, we we have other other applications in in the world that use SNP based tests. It's not a, a brand new uh, approach, but it is brand new in neuroscience. And so, what we intend to do, as I mentioned, is to to in parallel bring the companion diagnostic with this patient enrichment strategy into our phase two trial, which will start next year, and have it move forward so that at the time of approval, hopefully, we get that use of that companion diagnostic in the label. And much like what happened in the late 90s with Herceptin and Hercept test. Well, this is um, addressing one of the classic challenges in the field of neuroscience, which you alluded to earlier, which is that, you know, we enroll lots and lots of people with this broad term Parkinson's, but we don't have like good unifying molecularly defined disease from the outset. Um, so there's there's heterogeneity of people yeah, who enroll. And, and you're... And you're trying to get a more specific population that's amenable to a LARC2 small molecule inhibitor. Correct. And, you know, imagine, think back to the 90s. If you were trying to get Herceptin approved and you did what we all do in the industry, which is you power a study, you have some guess about how big of an effect size your drug is going to have, and you go in to an all-comers study. Herceptin is is amplified in 20-30% of breast cancer patients, right? It would have taken thousands of patients in that clinical trial had it not been for Hercept test for the companion diagnostic. The signal would have been missed. Yeah, and I it would have failed. Yeah, it would have failed. And I would posit that that's why a lot of drugs have failed. A lot of drugs in neuro, a lot of drugs elsewhere, right? We have we have been looking at at a at a patient population as the same disease as as a singular kind of mechanism and expecting to win. And, you know, occasionally you get lucky, but uh, it's not worked in, in our space. And so I do think that, that this concept will allow us to not just increase our probability of success in seeing a signal, but but give the drug to the right patient, right? And let the, the other two thirds try something else. Right patient, right drug, right time. This is what the precision medicine has been all about for 20 years plus. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so uh, you're trying to do this now. You have a partnership with Kyogen. They're they're helping you develop this test in parallel uh, while you're running your clinical trials with your small molecule. Um, what, what tissue sample does this uh, require? It's just a blood test, simple blood you, test. You, you take a blood test, you're going to be able to tell pretty quickly like if you have a, a a Parkinson's patient is or is not a candidate for this trial or a candidate for this drug. Exactly right. Very standard Illumina-based platform to run our our algorithm, our machine learning algorithm, and out comes a yes or no. You should be on the study or you shouldn't. You should be on the drug or you shouldn't. What sort of um, results have you been able to gather thus far? Let's start with preclinical, because I, I know the preclinical models for neurodegeneration have been challenging because, you know, mice don't exactly get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's the way, you know, people do. <laughs> uh, so what, what did you learn in that phase that paved the way for you to begin your, your clinical program? The body of evidence really comes from from the human genetics and the the bits and pieces of data that have suggested that hyperactive LARC2 is deleterious and can play 
uh, a central role, right, to the pathogenesis of Parkinson's. But that has been largely cell-based and human, you know, human studies, post-mortem analyses. The the confidence in the model and the confidence in that 30% of the sporadic Parkinson's populations ha- has been a real focus for the company. And how we got there was based on, again, accessing data from Michael J. Fox Foundation and others, which has been uh, a real game changer for us. And I know availability of data in general is going to change the way we do our work in drug discovery and development. So being able to to mine data and convince ourselves with a, a training data set and, you know, and then a test data set and then it independent data sets and cohorts from a variety of places that this 30% with this genetic signature exist broadly was one big area of focus and and excitement at the company when we concluded that that this was a robust number of patients and then this 30% is real. We then looked at biomarkers, both central, CSF, and blood-based to correlate with that binning, that patient catchment, if you will. And to say, do these markers tell us that the LARC2 pathway is hyperactive? And in fact, we have both CSF-based markers and blood-based markers that do. Let's say that that's, that's the cerebral spinal fluid. <laughs> yes, CSF, exactly. And that's the closest we can get to the brain, right? And and so it's an important analyte to to look at, an important sample to look at. And in both of those, blood and, and cerebrospinal fluid, you could see that this population does appear to have hyperactive LARC2. So that gives us confidence that we're on the right track, right? And that this genetic signature isn't just a curiosity or, or something that happens to, to be aligned with this group. In fact, it, they seem to be the people you'd want to treat. And so that kind of work it, with markers that make sense from a biology perspective uh, really give us a lot of confidence and excitement about this path. Okay. So these are Parkinson's patients. They're manifesting the symptoms. You you can right. see that, and you can also see the elevated, the, uh, the overactive uh, LARC2. Um, now, uh, you've developed a couple different small molecules uh, to uh, intervene, uh, and you have some results already from your first clinical trial. What, um, what were you looking for? From each of these two programs, what were you trying to achieve? I'm pretty sure getting sufficient concentrations into the brain is really important. <laughs> but what, what were you looking for there, and what have you observed so far? We're fortunate with LARC2, particularly because it's a kinase, to have nice pharmacodynamic markers in the blood and in the and in the brain in the CSF that we can read out. And so others have used similar biomarkers, but hyperphosphorylated LARC2 itself, some of the substrates of LARC2 are easily assayed. So what we've done with two molecules, NEU723 and NEU411, was look at healthy volunteers and establish a PKPD relationship for both small molecules. We took two into the clinic in staggered parallel. We invested heavily in this because we wanted to make sure we had the best molecule we could take forward. This has been a challenging target for the field, and there haven't been uh, many successes here because of the difficulty and selectivity with kinase inhibitors, and as you mentioned, brain penetration. So we we took two molecules forward in healthy volunteers in New Zealand, and in fact, now we've chosen NEU411 as the clinical candidate. We're extending our healthy volunteer study to uh, healthy elderly at the moment. And as we step through 
the healthy volunteers, we are gaining more and more confidence with each data set that NE411 is has the potential to be a best-in-class LARC2 inhibitor. It's highly potent. It's highly selective. It's the target in the blood, gets into the brain well, and and is to this day very well tolerated. So so the data that have been coming out of the phase one couldn't be better, and that's setting us up for the phase two next year. And that will be in patients where you've got a shell, I would imagine, uh, that you're you're hitting the target, that you're bringing down the the overactive LARC two, and you know with proper follow up, uh, we can see some sort of impact clinically on the the measurable symptoms of disease. The and then some, right? <laughs> and then some beyond, beyond hitting the target. What does it mean to the patient? So maybe just one word on that. We're extremely excited about where the field is headed in Parkinson's. It's been a challenge, right, for anyone working in the space. The disease progresses generally slowly overall. It takes a long time to determine if your drugs has an effect. The tools that the FDA has typically accepted are very antiquated, if you will, um, very subjective. And so now the field is shifting towards digital biomarkers as as potential endpoints in Parkinson's and other other diseases. And so we're very excited about employing digital biomarkers in our trial to try to understand the the so what of inhibiting LARC2. Now, is this the sort of thing where like where everybody carries around a cell phone, right? And it has an accelerometer on it, and you can tell like if a person's tremor is like getting better <laughs> and it collects data passively over time. The patient doesn't need to, well, the physician doesn't need to make a subjective evaluation once every three or six months when the patient comes in, and the patient doesn't fill out a survey and say, Well, I, I felt better on you know le- this week rather than last week. I mean, w- we're moving toward more objective, quantifiable molecular measurements. Exactly right. And you keyed keyed in on two important aspects. One is the subjectivity or lack objectivity, right, uh, of of those two different settings in a clinic with a physician's eyes only on on your performance and your behavior versus an objective readout like, like a wearable device. The other, you know, of course, is is just this continuous read, right? And this concept of uh, maybe not, you know, the worst the worst system symptoms appear in the clinic. Maybe they maybe they happen in the middle of the night. Maybe you know they happen all multiple times during the day, and you're not catching them when you're under observation by a clinician. And so, a continuous measure that's objective and highly sensitive is is what the field needs. And I, and I believe that. That we and others are going to to lead that charge to get the FDA to a point that once they see the data, which of course they are data driven, they they will understand the power and the utility. Now, this doesn't work for every disease area, but um, but Parkinson's is one case where it just might. <laughs> it's a movement disorder. We should yeah. we should watch movement. We should. Yeah. Now I, we're almost out of time, Nancy. I want to ask you as well because this this LARC two shows up in other disease pathologies as well, uh, in, inflammatory bowel disease. Is that right? And how how are you thinking about perhaps developing this program for um, overactive LARC two in inflammatory diseases? It's a great question and it's an important lesson. So there have been publications describing the role of LARC two systemically in in IBD. 
and a genetic link there, at, similar to the link in Parkinson's. We actually did a lot of work with our data science team and publicly available data and uh, are not convinced that that finding is one that we should continue to pursue today. The, the data suggests a very, very small subset of patients that uh, are of a specific ethnic descent that have this, this association and this increased risk. And so while we do have nice systemically restricted LARC2 inhibitors at the company, we are not deploying them right now in this direction, but we will keep our eyes open as to where there might be other utility because there's clearly a role for LARC2 in immunology. And we've done some really interesting work there in trying to understand that. But the association association with IBD is not one that we're going to pursue today. And that's okay. unbiased view of, of data sets, right? Well, you got to follow the biology. Uh, and better to learn it now rather than in a phase two trial. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Um, last thing I want to ask you, Nancy. I mean, you mentioned Herceptin. Do you think we're going to enter a world of neuroscience 25 years from now? where, you know, we have a whole bunch of these, uh, you know, molecularly defined treatments for subsets of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and, and other neurodegenerative diseases? It's inevitable, Luke. We are going to get there. I'm, I'm sure of it. There are lots of smart people working on this today. The data are there. The tools are there. And, and now it's just a combination of, of people focusing and deploying them. So, I hope so, but I believe so. Well, this show's called The Long Run for a reason. I expect to be around, and I hope to see it come to pass. Um, I'm, I'm here. Sure you do, I'm here. You do, too. Nancy Stagliano, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.